Welcome one and all to the second special edition of the Guelo Ramblings World Tour podcast. Once again it's time to step away from Asian and World Cinema and take a look at pretty much the most mainstream American movies there are, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. With the recent release of Avengers Endgame, I felt like it was a good time to take stock of the series. And whilst I was originally going to try and put all 21 movies in order, I felt whilst there are great, good, average and weak movies in this catalogue, too much time would have been spent shuffling films from position 12 to position 9 and back again. Instead, I'm just going to give my brief feeling about each film and then just take them chronologically in terms of release date. But first, well, as my previous special episode gushing about Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse would have shown, despite all my writings and talking about Asian and now world cinema, I am a complete comic geek and I suppose a Marvel zombie. I have been since a child. I used to pick up Marvel UK reprints from the local newsagent. And then, as an older teenager, I discovered comic shops, just in time to experience the 1985-1986 boom, with comics such as The Dark Knight Returns, Watchmen, Swamp Thing and the like, starting a boom in comics appreciation, certainly here in the UK. They weren't for kids anymore. And curiously, this boom was mostly coming from the distinguished competition, but Marvel was still doing strong work. I then lived through the 90s where the speculator market nearly killed off Marvel and saw the company just about survive bankruptcy. And although I'm not as heavy a purchaser of comics now as I was then, they still hold a certain special place in my heart. You see, the thing about Marvel Comics, the thing that I loved was a real sense of connectivity between all the franchises. I'm not talking about those big crossovers, but there was a sense that what happened in a Spider-Man comic one month could have a tiny effect in the Thor comic next month. Supporting characters would be shared, impacts of events would be felt elsewhere. They also felt somewhat more grounded. These were flawed heroes. Spider-Man carried the guilt of the deaths of his Uncle Ben and Gwen Stacy to undercut any successes he might have in the future. Tony Stark battled initially his health problems and then his alcoholism. Hawkeye, Black Widow, Scarlet Witch, Quicksilver all started life as villains. The Avengers would bicker amongst themselves. The Hulk was constantly on the run. The X-Men were hated by the world for their genetic differences. And this whole world was a much more grounded place. The New York of Marvel Comics felt like the New York of our reality. Not the quasi-futuristic paradise of Metropolis, and not the grim hell that was Gotham. And the disappointing thing was that in all those years, they were trapped on the page. There were movies, of course, and the odd TV show, but quality was frankly rank. DC managed a couple of good Superman movies, and a couple of good Batman movies. I'd hate to try and name a watchable Marvel comic book superhero movie until Singer's X-Men in the year 2000. Maybe Blade? But you see, there was something off about these movies based on Marvel properties as good as the first couple were. Marvel had sold off their crown jewels, the X-Men, the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man. So these films were all made in individual vacuums. They only existed with their own franchises and became limited in scope and eventually bloated in execution. X-Men and X2 were great, but the third movie? Oh, shudder. Spider-Man and its first sequel under Sam Raimi were great. The third movie was a mess. Oh my god, and those two Fantastic Four movies. 
Oh dear, there's worse to come in that particular regard. Anyway, my point is, whilst there have been good superhero movies, they have not quite grasped what attracted me to Marvel Comics in the long run. The flawed heroes, the interconnected universe. And then came the news that Marvel was going to set up their own studio. And I won't lie, I was very doubtful. Without the tent poles of the X-Men, the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man, what were they going to do? How would they be able to make films that were going to be of sufficient quality not to bankrupt the company again? And they answered these questions, at least in terms of box office over the next decade. And today I'll have a little look at each one of those films, talk about what I liked, what I didn't like, and I think I just will give a very personal opinion about these films. Deep breath time as I start with the first film. And I do warn you, this is going to be a little more off the cuff than my normal reviews. So we start in 2008 with Iron Man. And wow, what a strange choice. As I said in the introduction, the tent poles of the Marvel Universe were not available to Marvel. So they had to find another character to use. And to be honest with you, I can't believe they chose Iron Man. There's lots of reasons for this. One is, I don't think he was particularly well known outside of the USA. But it's not only that, he's not really a classic Marvel character in the same way. He's a millionaire playboy. He's somebody who would be much more at home in the DC universe. But what they had was a brilliant piece of casting. Robert Downey Jr. Now, in another world, Robert Downey Jr. wouldn't have taken this role. He would have had a successful career and he wouldn't have thrown it away with drugs and alcohol abuse. And he wouldn't be available for such a silly idea as the Iron Man film. But this was a Robert Downey Jr. who was fundamentally unemployable at this stage in his life. And even better, he looks like Tony Stark. He looks like Tony Stark from one of the 1960s comics onwards. Um, it was a genius piece of casting and the whole film works because of him. Sure, CGI's come up in such a way that it makes the film look fairly good and it still holds up quite well today. Imagine another couple of pieces of interesting casting. But you can't tell me that this film should have succeeded, especially when you think the director, John Favreau, was, well, he was famous for making Elf. I mean, this was a really weird combination, but somehow it worked. And why did it work? It worked solely because of Robert Downey Jr. Now, we might forget that 2008 also saw the release of The Incredible Hulk. This was a resetting of the Hulk films um, with Edward Norton in the main role. Actually, it's actually pretty, pretty good. Um, Norton puts in a really intense performance as Bruce Banner. The CGI is okay if a bit bit skanky at times um it's got some heft to it it's got some scope to it but it really is the forgotten child of the marvel cinematic universe indeed it took a couple of years for it to really be canonical in most people's minds including those people who are distributing dvds and blu-rays of the film um it's probably only really canonical because of those uh post-credit scenes of which this film was going to be which would be a staple of this kind of movie from this point onwards so it's 50 50 at this stage iron man was great incredible hulk was 
less so, but okay. Um, then we had Iron Man 2, which is probably one of my least favourite of the films. Um, it was a mess. It was everything I felt that could go wrong in the film. Um, I found the Mickey Rourke's Whiplash character um, unengaging, and frankly, it was all done a bit back to front. He was incredibly underused in the end um, because he didn't end up being the big bad directly. We just had another one of those, oh, look, there's lots of Iron Man fighting lots of robots. Um, it was trying to capture one of the great Iron Man storylines, the Demon in the Bottle storyline. The problem it had was it didn't have, the, there wasn't enough Iron Man story yet to drive Tony down into an alcoholic despair. Um, in the comic books, you had you had decades of storylines and disappointments and troubles that would lead him down to, to look into the bottom of a bottle for his um, salvation. Whereas here it was, well, he was going to die. And that apparently turned him into a dick. Um, it didn't really work very well. I just felt everything was very unengaging. It was a bit noisy. It was a bit messy. And I remember watching this on a plane flight to well, probably somewhere in America. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I'm utterly disappointed. This is all over them. And then the next year we had Thor. Now Thor, that was another tough sell. Um, and for some reason, Marvel once again had these these strange choices of directors. Now Kenneth Branagh, you know, he's a he's a national institution over here in the UK. But just because Thor speaks in a cod Shakespeare way doesn't mean um, sort of the director and actor who can pull off Henry V and Hamlet is really the right person for it. However, in Chris Hemsworth, who we only knew over here in the UK as somebody from an Australian soap opera, managed to sort of pull it off. Um, it wasn't great. The the, the crazy gang with Natalie, Tortman, uh, Natalie Portman and um, a couple of others didn't quite work. Um, it didn't quite have the, the, the scale required for a Thor story, certainly during the Earth scenes, um, the Midgard, shall we say, set scenes. Um, it worked a lot better when it was in Asgard um and I did think the destroyer was really well done um one of the things they tend to do in these Marvel Cinematic Universe stories is, is it'll change the so the antagonist to the vaguely unrecognizable from the comic book counterparts the destroyer was well done and of course what we also got was Tom Hiddleston's Loki which was such a good um, portrayal such a good character such a good performance that he would basically turn up in more films than Thor films moving forward they did some strange things they got rid of the uh, Donald Blake alter ego um, and indeed you might notice that not many of these Marvel Cinematic Universe films really go for uh, alter egos or secret identities um, Iron Man basically tells the world he's Iron Man at the end of the first film. Captain America's alter ego is, is well out in the open. He doesn't have a private life. And that's, that's true for most of the characters moving forwards. Um, which was an interesting choice. But maybe just... It was, it, was a, it was a case of taking away some of the sillier aspects maybe of comic books. But yeah, it, it, was, it was okay. I walked out of Thor and I thought that, that's a pretty good film. Kind of interesting. 
Also, 2011, we had Captain America, the first Avenger. Now, I've got to be honest, Captain America was the character I thought I would have a problem with the most. Um, they were... He's, he's, he's a character that I think travels the worst, or should travel the worst, outside of America. Um, one thing, I'm sorry, my American listeners, one thing we hate is a rah-rah-rah, America is best kind of thing. Um that really annoys us um however um Captain America First Avenger it's probably the most comic booky of these early films it channels a vibe that feels like a 19 sort of the 1960s version of Captain America which was harking back to the 1944 1940s version of Captain America um it just doesn't quite jibe tonally with any of the other films um something which they actually tried to sort out during endgame interestingly um i don't think the red skull's done particularly well hugo weaving is channeling pantomime rather than menace um and it's quite clear he didn't really enjoy his time on the film on the other hand chris evans who previously has a role as marvel's human torch in two of those dreadful um fantastic four films actually it actually works quite well and we see an early use of cgi to change the appearance of a character so it's a bit weird to watch uh, weedy chris evans but it, it was kind of done very well to be honest with you captain america first avenger it's the first one i hadn't seen at the cinema it was okay but nothing special and then we got 2012's the avengers so even though maybe the films have been fairly underwhelming, they'd performed quite well. And Marvel decided to put them all together. Um, and the genius stroke here was putting it under the control of Joss Whedon. Now Whedon, of course, was famous for his work with Buffy the Vampire Slayer on television and some other rewrites of scripts. But it was a really smart move. Again, it was a strange decision to have him as director. Um, up there with the, the Favreau and Branagh um, appointments but his ear for dialogue meant that these characters could work together beautifully um it was the best suddenly we saw a thor that that, that was amusing and funny and linked together not as a fish out of water but just out of his own pomposity um we saw robert downey jr and chris evans rub up against each other um we saw um little moments for characters like hawkeye who up to now had appeared as a as a brief scene in i think thor um we got more for the black widow to do who had actually been one of the highlights of iron man 2 so scarlett johansson's character there and and with the hulk reintroducing the hulk into the universe with the genius genius um use of mark ruffalo which now is just just perfect it gives a really sort of sensitive and uh, compassionate version of bruce banner that ruffalo brings to the brings to the role that ed norton's intensity probably meant that there wasn't much difference between banner and the hulk but this this time there's a sensitivity and a vulnerability that ruffalo brings and it just brings it all together in terms of the character work and we add in um, tom hiddleston's loki again and that's kind of feels kind of right that feels like that's why the Avengers came together in the comic books, because of Loki's machinations. This way it's a little bit different. On the downside, I will say the Shatari, who were an ultimate Marvel version of the Skrulls, 
um, kind of makes sense because you can't use the scrolls because they're part of the Fantastic Four license, but they were fairly faceless. However, it brought our characters together. It worked. Whedon's um, work on the script was genius. Um, and it laid a lot of the foundations with Tesseracts and eventually which were going to be um, uh, the, the, the Infinity Gems. It's all there. And it was hugely entertaining and it made a bucket load of money. And this is when Marvel Phase 1 completed. So yeah, now's when we start talking about these phases. Um, Kevin Feige, the sort of executive um, producer of all the Marvel Cinematic Universe stuff, was very strong on this and started talking about the different phases that the films would fall into to create um, sort of story arcs amongst the phases and then they'd all be building up to something, something special, which we'd all see in a few years' time. So the first part of Phase 2 was Iron Man 3 in 2013. Now, this one is pretty divisive. Um, lots of people really didn't like the, the sort of the fake Mandarin reveal, and it really upset my friends, the fanboys. Um, I found it really fun. Um, the only problem was the main villain um, was utterly forgettable, and the final set piece was just more CGI robots. And... They introduced the Tony retiring shtick, which would actually keep on going on about for another six years. It's hard to believe that Iron Man 3 was actually in Phase 2. It was that long ago. Um, but I actually think it's a really fun romp. There's some great character work there and some sharp dialogue. Um, it's everything I'd have hoped with a film that was helmed by Shane Black. Then it went from probably one of the best films in the franchise to one of the worst. Um, Thor The Dark World is a cock-up from beginning to end. I think there were some issues over the director originally. It's tonally rubbish. Um, it's full of underwritten characters. I could care less about anybody. The deaths in it mean nothing to me. Um, this this basically killed the Thor franchise off as far as I'm concerned. As entertaining as uh, Hemsworth is in the role, the rest of the world just wasn't working. Um, it was too reliant on Loki turning up. Um, it, it, the, the, the bad guy Malkith wasn't very well realised. And I really didn't know what was going on. And and honestly, it was the first time. It's it's the my least favourite Marvel film by quite some way. Um, and even a rewatch more recently hasn't changed my opinion on that. But then, do you remember how I didn't really enjoy the first Captain America film? Wow, the second Captain America film, Captain America the Winter Soldier in 2014, flipped that on its head. Who would have thought getting two guys who are most famous for directing episodes of Community would pull together probably one of the finest films in the catalogue? Sure, the whole Winter Soldier story didn't really amount to much, but this was a brilliant 70s style conspiracy th thriller that had some pretty good action moments on top, even though I have seen people criticise them. Um, it showed you that this was kind of real world superheroics, so characters like Crossbones and Batroc the Leaper were given sort of modern updatings that kind of worked and kept Cap as a man out of time in his costume. And, and the bad guys that he would fight are much more of the modern age. 
and and then we had the whole reveal of Shield being part of Hydra for years, and it just really worked well, and it upped the stakes for these kind of movies. And then we had the biggest surprise of all. In 2014, who would have thought a science fiction film starring utterly random characters, including a cyborg raccoon and a talking tree, directed by a guy who came from the trauma straight-to-video school of filmmaking, would be something we'd all fall in love with. Yes, I'm talking about Guardians of the Galaxy. It's a cosmic ecology with an all-pervasive soundtrack that jump-started a bunch of really, they're not even secondary or tertiary characters from the comics and put them up front and centre. Yeah, this wasn't the Drax from the comics and this wasn't even the Star-Lord that we're used to. In fact, who the hell knew who any of these characters were unless they were into deep-dive Marvel Comics history? But my word, it was entertaining and fun. And along with uh, the the second Captain America film, really made Phase 2 quite the highlight of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And then, after all that good work, 2015 brought us the most dreadful sequel to the Avengers film. Avengers Age of Ultron should have been the highlight of Phase 2. It brought together all the same characters again, many of whom, like Captain America, Iron Man and Thor, who had been through a second or maybe third movie. And it should have worked so much better because the characters were more fulsome and they'd been through more journeys. Um, It had a genius piece of casting with James Spader as Ultron, whose voice I could listen to all day. I love The Blacklist. I could just listen to uh, Red Stories and The Blacklist all day, and, and it just felt right for Ultron. But what we got was an even noisier mess than Thor The Dark World. It was... Oh, Whedon had been an inspired choice as director and writer in the first film, this just got away from him. Obviously, the expectations on him were too much. He had too many plates to spin. Um, things like having a Quicksilver, um, as well as the Scarlet Witch, didn't make a lot of sense, especially it was contemporaneous with uh, Quicksilver appearing in the uh, X-Men movies over at Sony. No, Fox, sorry, at Fox. Um and there were so many plates spinning here that when he died at the end, I'm sorry, spoilers, um, it had no emotional heft because we'd barely met the guy. Um, there's clearly a whole bunch of story that was left on the cutting room floor. It was obsessed with trying to get the vision up front and centre. So it acts as an extended vision story. Um, but it lacked the the emotional impact and complexity of the source material. Now, to be fair, this film did a lot of heavy lifting for future um, Marvel films, but re-watching this one again was a completely dreadful, hard slog, and it was probably the most disappointed I've ever been at watching a Marvel film. And then just to finish off Phase 2, we had a film which, by rights, I should hate. Ant-Man had been in pre-production, post-production, whatever you want to call it, for years. And it was meant to be delivered by Edgar Wright and Joe Cornish, amongst others. Um, Again, we had a uh, directorial fallout, although this one was a bit more public, because we'd been waiting. So, I mean, this film had been announced years previously. 
Um, Wright's never really spoken much about it. It's still clearly a good portion of his script has been involved. He's still down as a, I think, as an executive producer, and 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 the script is in his name along with Joe Cornish. Um, my guess is he didn't like having to crowbar his story into in into the Marvel universe proper, which is why we get that strange scene with the Falcon and Ant Man, which which doesn't quite have the same tone as the rest of the film. However. I should hate it, but you know what? Oh my god, it's really fun, it's really entertaining. Paul Rudd's reluctant Scott Lang is a really interesting addition to the Marvel Cinematic Universe because he's a hero by accident. It's got some fun, it plays around with the general conceits of the Ant-Man character. In fact, it's probably got one of the strongest supporting casts with Evangeline Lilly, Michael Douglas and so on in there. Um... Yeah, it's hugely entertaining, a lot of fun, and it's a strange way to end Phase 2. But actually, that was a really strong phase, except for Age of Ultron. And so on to Phase 3. Now, Phase 3 started with the third Captain America film, Civil War. Although, I think a lot of people possibly consider it much better as um, Avengers 2.5. And actually, I think it's a pretty solid film. It gave us things like the Giant Man version of Ant-Man. It gave us a glimpse of something we hadn't really expected up to this point. Spider-Man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oh, and there was some guy from Wakanda who turned up. And in Helmut Zemo, we actually have a really sympathetic villain, probably the most sympathetic in the Marvel Cinematic Universe canon. And it does smart things like have that fake-out ending where we expected this gigantic threat, when actually that wasn't going to ever happen at all. It was one man's revenge, um, which worked terribly well. Um, and I was really happy with that. I think this is a bit of a hidden gem and I hope one day it'll be looked upon more fondly than it might be currently. I think people enjoy the big moments in, in Civil War but probably found it ultimately disappointing but for me it's actually um, it's actually probably one of the smarter films in the, in the, in the catalogue and doesn't quite have the uh, people's good feelings towards it that they should. 2016 gave us the epitome of the solid Marvel Cinematic Universe film. That that would be a thing by now. There's enough films there that we know which ones are good, which ones are bad, and which ones are just there. Now, Doctor Strange, yeah, Benedict Cumberbatch is quite good actor. Well, he's a very good actor and quite suited, I would have thought, visually to the role of Doctor Strange. But this is a really forgettable film. If it wasn't for those stunning visuals... Um, the way that magic was realised in terms of visual tricks, things they were doing with the screen. Okay, it was it borrowed a lot from Inception, but it was really done well. Um, my biggest problem with the film is that in the comic book, Stephen Strange was a dick and had the accident, and through magic and through his ability to learn magic was how he became redeemed as a person became a much nicer person of it um and that journey that journey from dick stephen strange to hero stephen strange doesn't happen in this film the guy remains a dick throughout and indeed he never really redeems himself up until the end of phase three at all um and 
and yeah and 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 okay so he needs to differentiate himself from the other characters but it didn't quite work which means this film is you know it's visually beautiful it's solid there's nothing wrong fundamentally with it even with that sort of character journey issue that i have with the film and then we had guardians of the galaxy volume two and and it was always going to be hard capturing lightning in a bottle again and guardians of the galaxy two somewhat succeeds i'll say around 60 percent succeeds yeah baby groot's cute as a button but it's a joke that wears thin quick and i really peter quill's parentage was never really on my mind um, in the first film, so why they made it the highlight of this film or the main bit of this film, um, and you make him part celestial and take it away is just uninteresting. It's boring. There's lots to love. Um, Drax, David Batista's Drax is even better in this one. Rocket gets chances to shine. So does Yondu. Um, even, although more of a swan song for him, and and then we get some work with Nebula, which is going to feed into later films much more importantly. Um, the awesome mix volume two was less awesome, but it's I'm only really ragging on this because the first film was so spectacular. Um, it's it's another solid entry. It's over long. It makes some mistakes along the way, but it doesn't fundamentally shake anything up that can't be fixed. Now, although Gardens of Galaxy 2 disappointed, 2017 also gave us Spider-Man Homecoming. Now again, I kind of hinted at it before, I don't know how this happened. Somehow Sony decided to allow Marvel to make films with this character again. And because basically they'd fucked up the amazing spider-man series and now we're going to have to put an explicit on here <laughs> um they'd been okay but andrew garfield's spider-man his spider-man had been fine his but his peter parker wasn't the peter parker we knew um giving the charming tom holland the title role just made it an unqualified success it didn't bother doing spider-man's origin again thank heaven for that um, it just said, you know who Spider-Man is, this is who he is, make a few changes. Um, it tied it into the MCU brilliantly with what the Vulture was about. Um, in fact, in the Vulture gave us another really interesting villain. So there was a time you thought that Loki was the only interesting villain. But now with the Vulture, he ties in sensibly. And I will admit, I was blindsided by the reveal of who... Um, who Michael Keaton's character was, as well as being the vulture, um, because I didn't even think about it. It was just a brilliant turn. Okay, so the stakes are low in this film. I understand that. But it cleverly linked itself into the Marvel Cinematic Universe by by use of Tony Stark, I'll admit that. But it makes sense with regards to how he'd been introduced, how Spider-Man had been introduced into the Cinematic Universe. Um... But it was just, it, yeah, it was just done with such charm, such grace. Yeah, sure, low stakes. It also called back to some comic book stories. Um, so there was lots of Easter eggs there for sort of the, the old comic people at large like me. And so I thought, well, it's part of my homecoming. That was pretty good. But even better was going to be Thor Ragnarok. What do you do when you have a franchise in Thor? which has really failed. The first film was okay. The second film was dreadful. Um, but you've got um, Hemsworth's on, a, on obviously a long-term contract. You're going to have to do a film with him. 
I'll tell you what. Let's take another character who we can't seem to make a good film about, stick them together with a really great New Zealand director and make a ridiculously enjoyable character with the pair of them. Oh, oh, and also, not only have this hugely a hugely fantastic comic romp, um, loosed very basically on the Planet Hulk storyline, but adding obviously adding um, Thor into it. But we have a bit another movie going at the same time, a darker movie with a gloriously strong female lead in Hela. Um, it, it's oh, it's it's hard to explain how good it is. Um, Tom Middleton came back and redid the whole Loki thing, but the dynamic was totally different this time. You managed to involve a bit of Doctor Strange. You managed oh, it's um. It's just a, a genius film. Um, and I think it's probably the best Marvel Cinematic Universe film. Um, I've rewatched it the most, and it's even got time to channel um, Jack Kirby in its in its art direction. Um, there's, there's nothing not to love about it, unless you're being a little bit po-faced about things. So that was really good. And then the next year, 2018, they did it again. Um, now, when Black Panther was introduced in, uh, I think it was Civil War, um, he looked kind of interesting. What I wasn't expecting was a film to be made that was just not only visually interesting, but had incredibly strong black characters. Well, maybe we should have taken that as red. But what was also really strong was the female characters, and we talk a lot we will talk a little bit soon about Marvel's use of female characters, but Black Panther is where there's not just one, there's two or three really strong female characters that also happen to be black as well. Um, we get Martin Freeman in there as well, who's always enjoyable in a in, in, in an interesting role as well. Um, Wakanda as a nation is brilliant. Um, Black Panther himself is is fairly well realised, and Michael B. Jordan's um, bad guy is again another sympathetic bad guy. And you think, you know what? He's got a point. Um, the only downside is that the final battle between the two Panthers looks like a bad PlayStation Three cutscene. Um, the CGI is pretty woeful there, and I'd much rather have seen two guys in suits go at each other and have it just be enhanced by CGI rather than being fully realised by CGI. Um, you know, it went up for Oscars. It's a cultural phenomenon. Black Panther is an important film, um, but it was building on things which were already there. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a strong, great film. And then we got... Avengers Infinity War in which the Russo brothers came back showing that they're able to spin all these plates and move all these pieces around while we're watching them and there's a massive cast and a massive story and everything that had been talked about with all those Infinity Stones and Thanos and so on and so forth comes to fruition here and whilst the ending the main battle at the end feels just like the Wakandan battle scene from a year earlier. With the snap, with Thanos's snap, it had a real effect on viewers. Now, of course we knew what well, they've killed off Spider-Man. 
and we know there's another film where they're not going to kill Spider-Man after just getting him. You know, we knew these characters were going to come back, or that most of them were going to come back. We could see that, rather obviously, the original Avengers, the guys whose contracts were running out, um, were the ones that, that survived. So the, the, that 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 long-term threat of um, of a, a real shake-up clearly was was we knew it had been put off for another film. But it's really well made, it's really entertaining and actually holds up on multiple views even if you uh, even if you accept that the ending's a bit of a downer. Um it's yeah, it's like the Empire Strikes Back of 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 the Marvel Universe, although it's quite late in its in its run. Um yeah, hugely entertaining and it could have been a noisy mess, it could have been like every bad superhero movie trilogy where the third film has too many bad guys in it and too many characters floating around this one just worked correctly um and then bizarrely after infinity war we had ant-man and the wasp again it's all really they marvel had a hard time putting in the ant-man films into the same release cycle as everything else um and in the UK, it was especially mistreated because its release was put back for months um, because somebody thought that people wouldn't go to the cinema if the World Cup was on TV. And it's a real shame because I don't think many people went to see it. I don't think many people remember it. Um, obviously, it was in the shadow of Infinity War. But it's a really good film. It builds on everything fun about the first film and adds to it. Um, Paul Rudd again is engaging. Um, his relationship with his daughter is important. His relationship with Evangeline Lilly builds up a, builds up to another level. Um, in the Ghost, we have a visually interesting bad guy. Um, Ghost was originally an Iron Man villain, funnily enough, but it's incredibly sympathetic. She's not really a bad guy at all. This is really just a quest story. Um, the visuals again are fantastic in the quantum realm. It just takes the things which happened in the first film and makes them so much better. It's definitely the best second film, I think, if you think of how... Well, maybe maybe Captain America's second film was the best of it. But it, it, it's, it's really good, really interesting. And it is the hidden gem, if you like, of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And then this year, 2019, we had the last two films, certainly in this cycle. Um, we had Captain Marvel. Now... Don't get me wrong, I think Captain Marvel's a really, really solid movie. I love the 90s aesthetic. I love the phenomenal number of Easter eggs which are in it. Um, I love the scroll reveal. It, it, it's a fun film. It's well acted. Um, I love seeing Brie Larson and um, Samuel L. Jackson play off against each other. My issue is with Captain Marvel, the character. Um, her powers are undefined and apparently unlimited. There's nothing she can't seem to do. Um, she is a Mary Sue. Uh, she, there's nothing's a threat when you have someone like her available because they've set no limits to her. She, she has no weakness. Um, it's never really clear what again what what her powers are. Um, later on, it gets worse in Endgame. The way she's used as a dose a machina it's yeah I, I have a real problem with her although this is a really good film and i know what they're trying to say with the whole girl power thing and the me too stuff i mean all very important stuff 
but I think they all they actually did it kinda already in Black Panther with characters like Shuri, which were strong without being overburdening overburdening us with their power. Um, so yeah, Captain Marvel is it's a great film, but it's got some huge flaws in it, and the Mary Sueism of the character is not something I'm comfortable with. Um, interestingly, the character herself, she was a sort of a Rule 47 sort of character, just a female version of the original Captain Marvel. And they didn't really know what to do with her for years. Um, she was basically went through some horrible storylines where she got time raped in one. Um, another one where she had her whole mind wiped by Rogue in an X-Men Avengers crossover they sent her off into the X-Men comics and made her unbelievably powerful as binary and then in more recent years they've kind of brought her back and they've they've sort of reintroduced her retro fitted yeah retconned as they say her as a, as a much more important figure in the Marvel universe I mean she was when she was first introduced she was uh she was the most minor of minor characters um you know she was there with Spider-Woman and uh a few others that just never really iron fist maybe that never really took off so it's good that they've taken a lead female i'm all for that but she shouldn't be ridiculously powerful for the sake of being ridiculously powerful um good characters don't have to have ridiculous superpowers this just feels a bit anime-esque really and then finally, although not technically the last film of Phase 3, we have Avengers Endgame, which is a three-hour treatise on grief. Um, oh, and with some timey-wimey stuff. It did some clever things. So it brought Ant-Man and Nebula to the fore, who, you know, Ant-Man movies, like I said, seem to be a bit hidden gemmy and, and not really strong parts of the mcu before this um nebula has been building up to be a more and more important character as time moves on which i thought was really interesting um yeah it's got a huge number of emotional moments and i'm gonna be out there and say actually some of them are quite manipulative um it's even got some laughs in it as well um and it's epic beyond belief so it's a film of three acts sort of the first act being being one flooded with grief then there's the heist pit of it where we go back and look at a couple of um of the previous movies interestingly not necessarily the best movies but it all kind of fits in um maybe thinking about some of the stuff uh doesn't hold up to much um interrogation but don't worry about that and the conclusion although maybe a bit noisy and shouty and lots of people fighting each other it's a hell yeah moment and there's lots of it to go and then has a couple of um emotional down points at the end as well yeah it's a huge success and ties up the the the, the 21 the 20 previous films really well my issue is how many of you are actually going to watch 180 minutes of that again yeah, you might go and watch it again just to catch all those Easter eggs to understand things you didn't understand before. But come five years' time and you've got all your Blu-rays on the shelf or you're picking it off your streaming service, not many people are going to say, I want to watch Avengers Endgame. 
there's um there's at least 16 other films in that in that group which would be more interesting for a one-off watch so i do think the film has some issues in that but it is a spectacular finish to a bookend to those marvel cinematic universe films now in theory um the next spider-man film far from home is also part of phase um phase three uh i it's not out yet i can't talk about it i'm sure it'll be fine um but endgame does feel like the proper close point So that was the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Not all the films are great, but it would be hard to find a series of movies that quite have that consistency, or indeed uh, numbers, that any other film series has had. Um, it genuinely built to something. It learned to walk, it made a few stumbles along the way. Phase 2 in particular, I felt, was was full of quite a few weakish films. Um, it ended up getting superhero movie Oscar nominations. Generated the first billion dollar box offices. I really enjoy them. And, and obviously my reasons in the intro will explain why. But not a single one of them is ever going to be in my top 50 films of all time list. Um, they're enjoyable entertainment. Um, and in more recent years it's made real strides in terms of black. And despite my issues with Captain Marvel, female representation. I wonder what could be next. Um, maybe we'll have some LGBTQ plus representation. Marvel has plenty of options with characters there. My personal wish, though, would be a Muslim superhero, an American Muslim. Say like Kamala Khan, the modern Ms. Marvel. Anyway, I know that was a bit of a slog, but I would welcome any comments from you, my dear listeners. Uh, maybe you didn't like these films at all, or maybe I've been too soft or too harsh on your favourite. Um... I know it's been a bit of a long speech, so an extra special thank you for listening. There'll be a new real episode out very soon. Um, and come back and uh, hopefully listen to my next special episode when I'll try not to talk about superhero films. Thank you for listening.